Now, I believe that from this story, we see that Jesus is full of grace and he's full of truth. Nowhere in this story does Jesus ever minimize the truth. Nowhere in this story does Jesus ever minimize the sin that was committed. Nowhere in this story does Jesus downplay the truth of what is right and what is wrong. And yet at the same time, we see in this story incredible grace. We see in this story that Jesus is always kind, even though this woman was a sinner. Jesus was using this as a teaching tool to remind all of us that we are all in need of God's grace. For none of us are better than this woman. None of us are without sin. And Jesus allowed this woman to go unscathed. But he did challenge this woman, go and from now on sin no more. You see, the Pharisees were looking for this woman's condemnation. Jesus wanted to teach the Pharisees, though, about grace. The Pharisees wanted this woman to be stoned to death according to the law of the Old Testament. Jesus wanted to make a transition out of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant and show her grace. The Pharisees wanted to make it a scene of judgment. Jesus wanted, wanted to make it a scene of scandalous grace. There's something in us that cries out here that this ought not to have happened. And if that's in you, then maybe you lean a little bit more towards the truth. And you're like, stoner! Stoner! And yet something in us knows that God is a God of love. And we're so grateful God has extended grace to us because we too are guilty of sin. We too, before a righteous father deserved to be stoned, the wages of our sin is death. That's the truth. And yet we serve a God of grace. A God who extends to us grace and nowhere better, maybe in the Bible, do we see such a, such a beautiful picture of how there's grace and truth in the person of Jesus Christ. The, the reason that Jesus could handle the situation in the way that he did is because he is full of grace and truth. Jesus would pay for this woman's sin by his death on the cross, and thus he can show her grace. Jesus, who is truth, truly gave himself up as a sacrifice for sinners so that we could be recipients of grace. And so maybe you're here this morning, and again, you kind of lean on the truth side, and you're like, preaching the truth! And I would say a hearty amen. But I pray that you're also leaning on the grace side, the grace side, right? Say, give them grace. Give them grace. That's what God did for me. He gave me grace. When I was deserving to be stoned and to be killed, the wages of my sin again being death, I deserved hell. And yet God showed me grace. What a beautiful picture we see of our Lord and Jesus Christ. And so as we finish up this prologue, back to John chapter 1, as we try to kind of flesh out a little bit more the end of verse 14, Jesus, full of grace and truth, I think in some ways... 15, 16, 17, and 18 explain that theme of Jesus being grace and truth. And let me try to do it this way as we frame our sermon for this morning. I want to just give you three headings this morning that will allow us to see the beauty of Christ who is full of grace and truth. And so here we go. If you're taking notes, that's in your outline for you. The first heading is this. Number one, Jesus is better than John the Baptist. Okay, I know you know that. And I know that we all should know that and be like, duh, of course he's better, he's God. 
But it's still just important for us to realize how many times the Baptist keeps pointing back to Christ. In fact, your first sub-point, your first blank, if you are taking notes, we could say this. John the Baptist was sent from God. He, he was sent from God. In fact, look back up at verse 6 here in this same chapter. We read, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. When we looked at that several weeks ago, I told you that was a little bit of an odd introduction. We're talking about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and he was, he, was, he was God. He was in the beginning, and all things come through him, and he's created everything. And then all of a sudden, we read about John, but notice what verse 6 says. Verse 6 says, he was a man sent from God. He's not God. He was just a man sent from God. Remember, John the Baptist is just a man. He was sent from God. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We could just be reminded there's a difference between being sent from God and being God. And the greater is obviously God. And yet sometimes in our own hearts, in our own minds, we can start to think that we're hot stuff because God sent us to do a special mission for Him. And we can start to think that somehow we're playing the man. Don't ever think that you're the man. Don't ever think that you can one-up the word. Don't ever think that you can take the center stage. John the Baptist had every opportunity, and he always gave it back to Christ. And one of the biggest reasons that I hesitated on becoming a pastor was for the very reason of I thought, you know what? What if I thought I was a really good preacher? And what if I thought by saying I want to be a pastor, I'll get up in front of people and I'll preach the word and people will see what a great preacher I am. And I was scared to death of pride. And I was thinking, well, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in the middle of, of it all. You know, I'll just kind of sit here in the pew and work my job. And that was what I did for many years. And I'm thankful for that time. But there was a time when I felt like the, 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 the idea as well is that, is that we should never be ashamed to step up for Christ, not taking his glory, but to step up with strength and to lean into the opportunities that God gives us to proclaim his glory. But never try to take center stage, though. Always reflect if somebody praises you for your singing, give glory to God. If somebody praises you for how you're raising your kids, give glory to God. If somebody praises you for your success at work, give glory to God. Make sure that you're like John the Baptist, just realizing you're just one who's sent from God. You're just sent from God, and you're sent to be, in many ways, like John the Baptist. Your second blank says this, John the Baptist was a witness for Christ. That's what you're sent to be. You're sent to be a witness. That's all that God wants for you. John bore witness, verse 15, about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Right? We call him John the Baptist. We could just as equally call him John the Witness. Ever thought about that? We call him John the Baptist because he baptizes, baptizes. But here in the gospel, it's like, no, he's John the witness. He's always witnessing about Christ. That word witness, remember, means to testify. It means to speak well of. It means to approve. Are you a witness for Christ? Are you speaking well of him? In fact, a little bit later, and we'll look at it in a few weeks, look down at verse 25 and following, they came up to John the Baptist and they said, then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, 
The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, how can John continue to say he was before me? We understand that Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, was pregnant for six months before Mary, mother of Jesus, came and spent time with her. So John the Baptist is older physically in physical life than Jesus by six months. We also read here in the New Testament that John began his ministry before Jesus began his ministry. And so how could it be that the Baptist keeps saying, no, no, he's before me. He ranks before me. He's better than me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. And I think the, the obvious answer is John knew his place. He's a witness. His whole job is just to testify about somebody else. John is not the light. Christ is the light. And so we've got to remember that in our life, no matter what's going on, it's not about you. And it's not about your ideas. And it's not about your preferences. It's not about your particulars, right? Just about Christ in everything we do. It ought to be us pointing to Christ. He's before us. He ranks before us. He's more important than my wife. He's more important than my kids. He's more important than this church. He's more important than this ministry. He ranks first. What a great reminder for us just to continue to look at this example again of John the Baptist who points us as he is a witness for Christ. And then maybe we could say on that third sub-point here that John the Baptist is a precursor to he who is mightier than I. Matthew 3.11, we read this about John the Baptist. He, st he states, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, in that one verse, Matthew 3.11, there's three baptisms. There's the baptism of John, which is basically a baptism not of salvation, but a baptism of repentance. We could say turning from Old Covenant emphasis and turning to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the Lord Jesus. But the baptism of John doesn't save you. We've looked at that already, that it's not a saving baptism. Okay? So the baptism of John is not as powerful as the baptism of Christ, who will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I believe that those two terms there, one, the Holy Spirit is just simply referring to regeneration, that you have life, that you were dead and you're made alive by the baptism of Christ. And then that word fire, I believe, leads to judgment. He's saying basically you're either going up or you're going down. You're either baptized by the Holy Spirit and you're regenerated, or if you trace how the word fire is used, typically with judgment for unbelievers. And so the question could be asked again, well, which one of those is the most important? Who's really more mighty, John's baptism or Christ's baptism? And the obvious answer is it's all about Christ. It's, it's about him. John's just a precursor. He's just getting people ready. He's doing pre-evangelism. He's getting them ready so that when Christ comes, that he's able to bring the gospel into full focus. And it's as if John the Baptist is acknowledging, all I can do is what I do. And all I do is I point people to Christ. And how encouraging that's got to be for us today. I mean, sometimes I want to take my kids and wring them by the neck. Don't you know Jesus died for that sin? And I want to, you know, be the Holy Spirit in their life sometimes and be like, just bring the heat. I mean, I can preach at home. You know what I'm saying? I can bear down on my kids. But sometimes I need to be reminded that, you know what, Adam, you can't save your kids. You cannot bring regenerating life into your children. 
So I have to play the role of John the Baptist. I'm just going to point them to Christ. I'm going to remind them of the love of Christ. I'm going to warn them of the judgment of the coming fire for those who are unrepentant. But I'm going to point them to Christ. Isn't that so encouraging today as you seek to be a godly parent? Isn't that so encouraging today as you seek to win your coworkers to Christ that you can't change them, but you can point them to him who can change them? Somebody ranks higher than you. Somebody's more mighty than you. And that we have to just focus on being faithful as we witness to our extended family members, as we try to reach our coworkers and our neighbors and those that, that you live with, right? We, we want to point them to Christ as you share with that person on the plane. I, I was just hanging out at the mall Friday night. I was going to meet my wife for dinner, and we were going to hang out with some friends. And I got there early to try to save a spot at Cheesecake Factory, which told me there was a two-hour wait and I'm like, Lord, give me patience. What is up with the two hours, right? So then I sit down, and my, my, my party that's joining me is about 15 minutes out. So I sit down next to this high school kid at the table, and I just thought, you know what? I just got one shot with this guy. So I just start talking to him. Hey, man, what's your name? So he tells me his name. Hey, where do you go to school? He tells me where he goes to school. And then I say, hey, man, I, I just want to ask you a more personal question. Do you have any type of faith in any type of religion or, or, or are you a religious person? He's like, no, I'm an agnostic. And I'm like, oh, really? And before you know it, I just had the opportunity to hear him explain that and then say, could I share with you about the greatest news I've ever been told about the love of Christ and I walked through the glorious gospel of our Father who created us, of our sinful condition before Him, the fact that we deserve hell, that Jesus died on a cross and was raised from the dead, and that He must repent and turn to Christ. And this kid's eyes got like this big, you know. And But he respectfully listened for many minutes, and I was just reminded, I wanted him to taste Christ, like right there. You know, it used to be, in my earlier days, I'd have been like, hey, man, pray this prayer right now. Bow your head. Here. You know, and I would have tried to get him to pray right there. But you know what? Because I'm trusting in the sovereign grace of God, I know that while I pointed him to Christ, and, and that's not kudos for me, for every one guy I share the gospel with, I pass 100. Right? I pass by 100 of them. So, but for this one guy, I'm just trusting. You know what? God, you got to save him. God, you got to open his eyes. I can't do it. Lord, he's still blind. He still has scales. But would you show him your power, God? Show him your saving love. And it's just a reminder today that that's all we are. We're just precursors. We're just preparing the way for God to do his thing. Jesus is the main event. You're just opening up and let God do his work. And that's what the Baptist is talking about. Again and again, he ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus is better than John the Baptist, right? The second point of the passage, I think, here in verses 16 through 17, is we need to also say, number two, Jesus is better than Moses in the law. Like, way better. We know that, right? But let's look at it anyway. Verses 16 and 17, and from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's just start off in this first sub-point by saying this. You cannot be saved by keeping the law. All right, if you're kind of churchy and you grew up in church, you know that. You know there is no salvation through the law. Galatians 2.16. Yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So we could give a hearty amen. In fact, let me give you seven ways that the law is different from grace. Just real quick in rapid succession, and you can look and think more about this on your own. I took these from A.W. Pink's commentary on the Gospel of John. Thank you, brother, for lending me that commentary. It's been a fabulous addition to, uh, to my studies. But here we go. You ready? Just real quick, real, real quick. Number one, the law addresses men as members of the old creation. Grace makes men members of a new creation. So the big difference between the law and grace is the law, again, addresses us under the old nature, the old creation. With grace, we're made into a new creation. Number two, the law manifested what was in man, sin. Grace manifests what is in God, love. So your blank there, number two, is the word love. That's what grace manifests. The law shows us our sin, and rightly so. But grace shows us the love of God. Number three, the law demanded righteousness from men. Grace brings righteousness to men. Right? There is none righteous, no, not one. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ that's added to your account. It's all of his presence in your life, his perfect obedience, and yes, his very essence that is in a sense given to us as it's imputed to our account. It comes from grace, not from the law. Number four, the law sentences a living man to death. Grace brings a dead man to life. The wages of our sin is death. That's the law. It sentences each and every one of us to death, but by grace, a dead man can be made alive. Number five, the law speaks of what men must do for God. Grace tells of what Christ has done for men. Thank God for what Christ has done. Fulfilling the law perfectly. Dying on the cross is our substitute. Paying our penalty that we could receive the grace of God. Number six, the law gives a knowledge of sin. Grace puts away sin. So the law brings sin up. Hey, you got to deal with this. You got stuff in your life. Grace is like, hey, I'll take care of that for you. That's the blood of Christ sacrifice for you, that that sin debt could be put away because of the gift of grace through God's Son. Number seven, the law brought God out to men. Grace brings men into God, right? The law called men out, and is in a sense, a lot of times more external, but it's grace that brings men into a real relationship with God. Christ dwells in you, right? The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Okay, so we understand and thank God that the law doesn't save anybody, all right? But B, next sub-point, but the law was not all bad. Okay, unless we tend to think here, well, I'm just going to punt the law, forget the law, get it off my back. I don't ever want to think about the law again. That's not how the Bible talks about the law. In fact, Paul makes a few arguments in the book of Romans. Consider Romans 3, 31 do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Romans seven twelve. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So how could it be that we're saying that the law is good and holy and it's not sin? 
Well, I believe that these three verses in Romans are referring to the moral law reflecting the character of God. In the Old Covenant, the ceremonial law, the dietary law, the civil law were all good and served their point and purpose, but those parts of the law are done away with, right? We can dress like we want of different fabrics. We can eat of pigs, praise God, for bacon, right? We can do all kinds of things to the glory of God that was forbidden in the Old Testament. So those parts of the law, ceremonial, civil, dietary, however you want to categorize it, are done away with. The parts of the law that continues would be what I like to call the moral law. We could say the Ten Commandments. Maybe we should say, to be specific, nine of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep, uh, keep it holy. The fourth commandment is a commandment that Christ overturns, and he says every day is to be a Sabbath unto the Lord. And so we don't follow uh, Sabbatarian Old Covenant emphasis. We, but the other nine of the Ten Commandments we still follow because they're all reiterated in the New Testament. And so that law of God, the moral law of God, um, the imperatives of the New Testament, one anothering one another, uh, bearing uh, one another's burdens, Galatians 6, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this, this part of the law is what continues. And so the law is to be a resource that's helpful for us. It just is not to be looked at as saving us, right? And you'll see that here in these next couple of points. The next subpoint says this, Moses is to be regarded as a positive servant of God. We want to be careful here because it'd be easy for us to be like, forget Moses, forget the law, as if somehow Moses and the law are always brought up in a negative way. They are not. They are not always brought up in a negative way. And you'll have to look at this on your own for the sake of time. But in John 5, 45 through 47, in John 7, 19 through 24, you're going to see that Moses is not a bad guy trying to mislead God's people. He's not. He's a good guy. He's the mediator, small m, connecting God with his people. So Moses is to be encouraged and to be praised for his obedience. He wasn't perfect. But he was a great guy, right? If you were really of Moses, Jesus said, then you would be of me. So he's saying it's okay to be of Moses, but if you're really with Moses and following his argument and following his prophecy, you would realize I'm, I'm actually the one he's talking about. I'm the manna from heaven, right? I, I'm the bread of life. And so he goes through those arguments there to understand that Moses is a good guy. I, I'm just trying to say Moses is not wrong. The Old Testament law wasn't wrong. Calling people to obey the law was not wrong. So if Moses is not the problem, then what is the problem, D, in your outline? The problem was with the Jews who misused Moses and the law. Moses and the law are not problems within themselves. Moses and the law are blessings from God. But those who misuse Moses and the law, many of the Jews were misusing the law to give them power over people and power over their own conscience to rationalize what they're doing and power over Christ to suppress him under their authority. And so they're misusing the law, but the law in and of itself is not bad. The Jews thought, however, that you could get to heaven by keeping the Mosaic law. And you can't. You can't get there. Again, we see the exchange even between the man born blind in John 9 and the Jewish leaders. They're kind of harping on Moses and how he's awesome and he did all this. And the man born blind said, yeah, but this guy healed me. I was blind, but now I can see nobody's ever done that. You ought to look to him. You ought to look to him. And so the problem with the Jews is that they prized Moses over the Messiah. 
They thought Moses was better, and he's not. Okay? One last thing I want to say here. E, Moses and the law together are a gracious gift from God. Now, I'm pointing here at verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, at a first reading of verse 16, you're thinking, as I was, oh, yeah, Jesus is grace upon grace. Like, Jesus gives grace, and he continues to give grace, abundant grace upon grace upon grace, all from Jesus. That's not what I think this verse means. After doing my homework this week, and I'm not saying I'm right, commentaries go back and forth on, on what grace upon grace means, but if you follow it carefully in its context, and I think even looking at the various prepositions, that word upon is the word anti in the original language, and that word upon, anti, is typically not translated as upon, it's more often translated as instead of or in the place of. And so if you apply that lexical definition, upon, instead of the word upon there, maybe it could say grace instead of grace, or grace in the place of grace, then what would that mean? And what I'm saying is this, what's being said here is that from the fullness of Christ, we have received grace instead of grace, or grace in the place of grace, I'm saying that the second grace there in verse 16 is possibly a reference to the law that was given through Moses. D.A. Carson describes it this way, quote, On the face of it then, it appears that the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ is what replaces the law. The law itself is understood to be an earlier display of grace. So when we're saying in verse 16 again, grace upon grace, we're saying, look, we receive ultimate grace from Jesus. But before we received ultimate grace from Jesus, we had a grace in Moses in the law. And it's an inferior grace, but, and it's not a saving grace. But nevertheless, it's the goodness of God to give us the law. Maybe we could think of it this way, Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian. Let's just pause right there. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? The law was our guardian. It was our tutor. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up. That's good. The law was our guardian. Thank God for the law. It was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Right? So the law had a purpose. It was grace, but it wasn't saving grace. When Christ came, that's saving grace, and so we're justified by faith. The same thing in Hebrews chapter 3. Now Moses was faithful. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Saying all that to say this, Moses had glory, but Jesus had more. Moses was faithful, but Jesus was more faithful. The bottom line for this whole point is this, the law was good, Jesus was better. You say, Adam, why are you going off on this? Here's why I'm going off on this. Too many people want to do away with the law. Too many people want to say, oh, it's just all grace. God's a God of love, and he loves everybody just like you are, and you can stay how you are. That's not true. God loves you just like you are, and he wants to change you and to mold you and to shape you into the image of Christ, and you would never know what that looks like if he didn't give us the law. The law shows us our need of grace and our need to change. It's a guardian. It still protects us. It doesn't save us, but it's still grace. 
God gives to us grace upon grace. Notice even in verse 17, not one negative thing said about the law. It just simply says, for the law was given through Moses. That's neutral, right? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We see something better. Grace and truth comes through Christ. Let me try to explain this, or illustrate it this way. Let's say that I'm out working in the yard, okay? Hot summer day, cutting grass, weeding, clipping, you know, trees, limbs, and I'm just getting all sweaty, all dirty, and I walk in, and my wife is like, honey, you look pathetic. You know, let's say I have dirt smudged across my face, and so I go look in the mirror, and sure enough, I have dirt and sweat, and I just look like, man, I just need a bath, right? And you're looking in the mirror, and the, and the mirror shows you exactly what you look like. The mirror's doing its job. That's what the mirror does. It reflects you. Now, what if I, in that very moment, took the mirror off the wall, and I started rubbing it on my face, and I'm thinking, man, i got to take this mirror, and I'm going to get all this dirt off with the mirror. This mirror is going to make my face shine. And I'm just like scrubbing my face. What would you think about me then? You say, Adam, you're an idiot. Put the mirror back on the wall. Wash your face with the water. Yet too many of us take the law of God's word and we try to be conformed into the image of the law. And we take legalistic leanings of that which is good and gracious, the law, and we try to justify our preferences, and some of us, even our own salvation. It doesn't work that way. Turn on the water of God's grace. Be washed by the blood of Christ, who cleanses us of all of our sin. The only way to get the dirt off is to be washed. That's what Christ does. He's full of truth, but he's also full of grace. He washes us. He cleanses us. He makes us new. Stop being an idiot. Sorry, that's a strong word. Right? But don't keep looking to the law. It's never going to cleanse you. But it still has a purpose. right? Don't take that mirror. What if I started rubbing my face with that mirror and I realized I'm not getting clean and I just shattered that mirror and I crashed it on the floor and I swept it away and said, I'm never looking in a mirror again. You might need to say, hey, Adam, you need a mirror, bro. <laughs> you need a mirror in your life. Your hair is messed up right there. You need, a, you need a mirror, right? So we need grace. Christ is the perfect balance of grace and truth. And so that's what is going on here, I believe, in verses 16 and 17. Let's just wrap it up. Verse 18, one more thing to look at if we can. Number three, Jesus is the best way for the Father to be made known. Verse 18 again, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, just to be clear here, we're saying no one has ever seen God, right? The Bible says that. In fact, number one, that subpoint there says to see God face to face was to sign your own death warrant. There's a story of Gideon, how he saw the angel of the Lord, and he feared for his death. There's a story of Manoah, the father of Samson, who saw the angel of the Lord, and he said, we shall surely die. There's the story of Isaiah, who saw the Lord and said, I'm ruined, I'm undone. So it is true the Old Testament pretty much teaches to see God, to see his face, would be your death warrant. But secondly, God cannot be seen because he is a spirit. Right? He doesn't have flesh and blood. So you can't really see his face. Even though the Bible refers to that at times, he, the Bible also teaches he's spirit. John 4, 24, God is spirit. 2 Corinthians three seventeen, the Lord is the spirit. 
Colossians 1.15, invisible God. 1 Timothy 1.17, the only invisible God. Hebrews 11.27, for he is invisible. All right, so in one sense, we can't even see him. Three, Moses may have spoken to God face to face, but he never saw God's face. Again, you'll have to do this homework on your own, but there in Exodus 33, we talk about how Moses begged God to see his face. And in one sense, in 33:11, it says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This is what I believe we call an anthropomorphism. Okay, that's a big 50 cent seminary word. But it's just simply saying sometimes we speak of God from a human characteristic. We know he doesn't have flesh. We know he doesn't have bone. But we speak about him in that way. And that's what the author is trying to condone here in an appropriate figurative use of language. Because later in verse, uh, chapter 33, it says, basically, the Lord said to Moses, verse 20, But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Right? So that's when he put Moses in the cleft of the rock. And his glory passed by, right? And he just saw a little bit of from the backside, the glory of the Lord. And so no one has ever seen God physically, but through Christ, we can see God spiritually, right? So B, there in your outline, says no one but Jesus could ever reveal God. No one but Jesus. This is, number one, the monogenesis job. If you weren't here last week, forgive me, but monogenes means only son, right? The unique one. The only one. It's his job. If you want to see the Father, you've got to first see the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We also see, number two, this is the monogenesis privilege. It's a privilege for Christ to show us. Again, verse 18, no one's ever seen God. The only God that's referring to Christ, who is at the Father's side in his bosom, up against his chest, so to speak, he is made known. So it's the privilege of Christ to make the Father known. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God said, for, for God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see the glory of God? Look into the face of Christ. It's only through Christ. Or we could say it one more way. Number three, this is the monogenesis responsibility. This is the only son. This is his responsibility. John 14, 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, finish it, has seen the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Have you seen Christ? If you're here this morning, and you haven't seen Christ, then you've yet to have tasted eternal life. If you're here this morning from any religious background or from any sincere position, but you have not seen Christ and beheld his glory, you have not seen the Father. Today, I call you to this Christ. Today, I call you out of darkness and I say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look to him. Look to Christ. Only through Christ can you see the Father. And don't try to get there any other way. You won't get there through great men like John the Baptist. You won't get there through the law like what Moses brought. You'll only get there through the monogenes, the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the take-home part of your message, just a couple of application thoughts 
Number one, if Jesus ranks first in your life, is that demonstrated clearly in all your priorities? Okay, if you were to say, like John the Baptist, I'm outranked here because there's someone before me, that's Christ. Does that hold true in all your priorities? Here's my challenge to you. Every husband needs to go to his wife today and say, hey, baby, do you think Jesus ranks first in all my priorities, yes or no? And if not, why don't you show me the ones that you think I'm out of line and listen to her, okay? And then after you do that as a leader in your home, wives, I'm encouraging you to look at your husband and say, hey, sweetie, does Jesus rank number one in my life or do you feel like sometimes there's something else that comes before him? And listen to your husband. This isn't a time for argument. He does not. That's not true. That's not what I'm I'm talking about. Just say, hey, thanks for showing me that. I want Christ to be number one. I want him to rank first in every area of my life. All right, number two, if Jesus is better than Moses and the law is demonstrated, is that demonstrated clearly in where you place your emphasis in your conversations? The word conversations. Here's what I'm getting at. Sometimes in a church, we get too happy about other things, right? Homeschool, certain preference in worship, certain mode of baptism, certain book you should read or shouldn't read, movie you should watch or shouldn't watch. You start to feel more holy because you didn't watch Harry Potter. I'm getting in trouble. I can tell it already. I'm going to get some emails. All right. But the, the point is, all that stuff is important. I think that's important. But talk about Christ. If he really ranks number one in your life, and if you really aren't so emphasizing as much Moses and the law then emphasize, just start with Christ. Start there. Start with Christ. Let him fill your conversations. Let the abundant life that you're living be what you're excited about. And I just see way too many people energized about particulars and preferences. And you talk to them about the gospel and they're like, oh yeah, all right, I knew that. I knew that. You're like, well, that's what it's all about. Right? Come back to Christ and let him be the center of your conversation. Number three, if Jesus is the best way to make the Father known, is that demonstrated in your pursuit of the knowledge of God? You want to know God? You got to know Christ. You want to know Christ? You need to focus on the gospel. You need Christ. Don't be a Bible head. Keep coming back to Christ. Keep coming back to the theme of redemption. Keep coming back to him who outranks us, who is before us, who is full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dig a little bit more into your inerrant word, which just never stops to take us deeper and to take us further and to encourage us and to challenge us and convict us. And we know it changes us by your spirit, through the grace of our Lord, because of redemption, in the power of the gospel. And yet Jesus is the word. He is the law, the law of Christ. He is the scripture. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. So much to think about with this whole prologue from verse 1 all the way now to verse 18. Would you continue to teach us these things, how the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that he's the monogenes, the only son of the father. Help us to see him today full of grace and of truth. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.